Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Center for Strategic and International Studies. We know we're in a room of good friends when the audience can't stop talking. I mean that as a compliment. It's great. My name is Kimberly Flowers. I'm the Director of Food Security here at CSIS. And we are here today to talk about the Farm Bill, or at least one aspect of it. Knowing, looking around the room and seeing who's here, you all know that the Farm Bill is an incredibly complex and very comprehensive piece of legislation. Congress has mandated to pass it every five years. It has a huge impact, particularly on rural communities in America. It regulates crop insurance and renewable energy and subsidies and trade and food safety. So really, the Farm Bill impacts how food is grown. It impacts what food we eat. And I, and it covers a lot more than I think people understand, um, from nutrition assistance to low-income families in America, as well as food aid, of course, for vulnerable communities around the world. It's responsible for feeding and nourishing a lot of people, both domestically and globally. There's one area of the Farm Bill that doesn't get a lot of funding, or quite frankly, a lot of attention. And that was the area that we wanted to focus on, which was agriculture research and development. Now is a time where science keeps being questioned. And we felt it was important to sort of dial up the dialogue around science and innovation and research. And it won't surprise you, all of you in this room know who I'm about to announce, that Secretary Dan Glickman was the first person that I reached out to um, to help us with this conversation to sort of lay the groundwork and provide opening remarks. There are three reasons that Dan is the best person for this job. The first is he knows Congress. He spent almost two decades representing Kansas, and he was also in the House Agriculture Committee. So he understands the complexities of the political environment, the controversies, controversies that surround elements of the Farm Bill, and how important it is to American families. Another reason that I chose him, of course, is because he was the former Secretary of USDA. Six years in that role, he understands certainly how every dollar counts for an agency and the role of research and development, both domestically and globally. And it's that global element which is the third reason. In his current role at the Aspen Institute, you know, he leads delegations of congressional men and women overseas so they can see firsthand the global implications. In fact, I saw one of his congressional delegations in Tanzania maybe two years ago when I was in this role out there doing my own research. And it's, it, it is so important for congressional staff and members to get overseas and to better understand how the American tax dollars has global implications. So Dan, please, the floor is yours. Well, thank you, Kimberly, and thanks to the folks here, and thanks to the great experts in this room who I, I, I cower in front of folks like uh, Bob and Sue and, and my friend Sonny. And um, so I wear a lot of hats. That's why I've lost hair over the years. Uh, uh, so I, of course, uh, wear my hats at Aspen and the Bipartisan Policy Center, where we try to bring people together in this country, left and right, Republicans and Democrats. And you see what a spectacular job I've been doing lately on that one. Um, uh, but also uh, the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, uh, which I'm very involved with, the Foundation for Food and Agriculture Research, AGREE, and a lot of other things. So I've tried to keep my hand in, in, in this area. And um, I guess 
I'm, so I'm not a politician anymore. I guess once you're one, you're always one. So I don't have to worry about what I'm going to say. Nobody's going to fire me today. Uh, they may not ask me to speak again. But, uh, and I understand there are still a few federal employees in the room. So don't smile when I say something that is, uh, uh, you know, is maybe meant to ridicule somebody in office. But, uh, but, uh, but let me just start by, by just talking generally about Farm bill, I've been through five. Four as a congressman, one as the secretary. And uh, they're complicated. They're largely congressionally written. It's one of the areas where the administration, by and large, has less authority than they do in almost any other agency of government. Uh, you know, some of you have read the Michael Lewis piece in Vanity Fair, which I thought was actually a very interesting piece. But the one thing that was totally missing from that piece was a mention of Congress and the role of Congress in determining what farm bill actions are like, uh, how the different pieces of rural America and agriculture fit together. And you really have to understand this kind of connection between the legislative branch and the executive branch when it comes to agriculture. It's a lot different than the Energy Department or the Health and Human Services Department. You think about it. The Congress has this almost proprietary, almost familial role in what farm policy looks like. It's been that way since the 1880s. Uh, Bob Thompson, I'm not saying you were around in the 1880s, but, but Bob can talk about uh, that, that relationship, and it's very important when we look at farm policy to recognize that. And I suspect this farm bill, whenever it comes up, is not going to be that much different. Congress will assert itself and, be in, and essentially uh, run the show. And I also suspect it will be largely bipartisan. Um, at least I hope that's the case. But when it comes to the research component of it, which is kind of the foundation of the whole thing, I would make the following points. Number one is, is that um, the U.S. is a global leader. It ought to act like a global leader. And when it comes to agriculture research, uh, uh, we are at, the, at, a, at a precipice of not acting like a global leader when it comes to not only research dollars, but in, in terms of research priorities. Uh, we're now second to China in total public agriculture research spending. That's been the case for almost 10 years. In 2013, China's spending on public agriculture R&D doubled that of the U.S. Brazil is, uh, I don't know if Brazil's ahead of us, but they're close to us. And other nations are, in fact, doing the same thing. And, um, you, you know, we need international collaboration in order to uh, meet global food and nutrition demand. I don't want to see the U.S. left behind in this process. Um, and I think this is, 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 an, is a critically important first step to recognize this is important to us. Now, I'm going to digress for a moment and talk about a little bit of the elephant in the room. And it is not to be personal, but it was to talk about the nomination of Sam Clovis as the uh, Undersecretary for Research, edu Extension, Education and Extension. And I do, I do not know him at all. I want you to know that. So he may be a fine man and a fine human being. But can you imagine the government appointing the head of the National Science Foundation as somebody with no science background? Somebody at the National Institutes of Health who was either not a biochemist or something who had no scientific background. Somebody running DARPA 
at the Defense Department with no scientific background. And you can go through the agencies uh, of, of government. What I suspect has happened, to, uh, two things here. One is I think uh, Mr. Dr. Clovis was a friend of the president's and active in the campaign, and there's nothing wrong with that. A lot of people get their jobs that way. But it did disturb me that this key part of agriculture, the funding of our research budget, uh, went to somebody who did not have any experience in the uh, uh, subjects that were required and, and the demand that Congress intended when it created that position and, in fact, put in the statutory language. Now, why did that happen? And why didn't it happen in a lot of other places? And I suspect one of the reasons it happens is because we in agriculture have had such a difficult time making the case that what we're doing is important, that is critical for the future of the human race. And uh, whether it's feeding the world or dealing with climate change, or dealing with animal and plant disease, nutrition, you name all the subjects. What, what the R&D part of the Department of Agriculture does is to sustain a network of long-term planning for the future for every single human being in the world. So this is not so much a slap at the president or Dr. Clovis, while I question the appointment, it's an, a, a subject that we should look into ourselves and figure out how something like this could happen and how uh, perhaps the belief that we're not as important as we ought to be in the process should be, should be considered. So um, it's a challenge to all of us that not only is what we're doing in the research area important and the United States is a global leader, we have to do an extraordinarily better job of relating this to average people, how it affects their lives. And if we don't do this, I suspect we will have continuing problems. We've been very lucky. We had uh, Shavanda and Kathy and going back, and Sonny, of course, and going back into history, we've had very, very good people in that world, and we need to make sure that that continues. So, but you can't do that. You can't be a global leader unless you have the talent pool at the top that's able to sustain that. So I'm sorry to go off on my soapbox. Again, I don't know him, and uh, I know he's close to the president, so that may be a good thing. But I'm just saying from the standpoint of, the, of what we're talking about today, it is kind of the elephant in the room, and it's something that we need uh, to, to deal with, uh, certainly, extent, extensively. Uh, so I wanted to talk to you about a couple of things that I'm involved with and then give you some thoughts on agriculture more generally. I've been privileged to have been named by Secretary Vilsack to be on the Foundation for Food and Agriculture Research Board. I was chairman for about three years, and now my friend Mark Keenum, president of Mississippi State University, is chairman, excellent chairman, things that we're trying to work on. So FAR was established as a place where, I guess to say it as, as simply as possible, the out-of-the-box ideas that were not necessarily being funded at USDA, or they didn't have the resources to do it, or that the private sector alone did not have the resources to do it, that we could come up with this funding where we could kind of stretch the imagination and, and fund and participate in agriculture decisions that will, in fact, change people's lives. So 
I'd mentioned a few of the of this of the uh, uh, profound subject areas that we are working on. One is uh, harnessing the power of photosynthesis, and that is realizing increased photosynthesis efficiency uh, in trying to make plants grow faster, better, more productively. And uh, this is an area that ag science has been working on for a long time. But if you look historically, there have not really been transformational changes in how we view photosynthesis and photosynthetic processes for a very long time. So FAR is looking into this and working collaboratively with USDA, with the private sector, and with others. Second area we're working on is urban agriculture. Uh, with more than half of the global population now living in cities and suburbs, indoor and vertical farming deserves consideration. Uh, urban farming occurs on a small-scale basis, and largely it's outdoor urban farming, but um, we need more research to find out what's possible, what the potential is for growing fresh food locally year-round. And so that's one of the areas so far is taking a leadership role in exploring this new frontier, hosting an event at IBM Research Headquarters in New York today. That's not why Sally is not here uh, to look at these particular issues. Another area is digital plant breeding. So FAR has a grant in supporting a University of Illinois project uh, working with international colleagues to model an entire plant digitally. This has never been done before. Uh, next comes the human being. Hope they find somebody besides me to do that on, but uh, this is really important stuff. Plant breeding and experiments using the power of a computer instead of a field trial could take the timeline and improve it for developing improved crop varieties uh, from months to minutes. Uh, the uh, fourth area we're looking at is the area of food rescue, which the private sector and the NGO world is, is working on as well, but funding from FAR and the Walmart Foundation uh, is supporting a World Wildlife Fund research project working with farmers to reduce crop loss that, in, that counts uh, for a variety, it comes from a variety of reasons, including weather, drainage, damage, cosmetic standards, and whatever. And the fifth thing is uh, crops of the future collaboration. So as we face monumental nutrition and food security challenges, we can't afford to work in silos. So FAR funding has brought together eight companies and organizations to work together towards breeding crops needed in the future, better drought resistance, higher nutritional content. And this is a unique public-private sector partnership that is dealing a lot of problems that affect uh, uh, plant breeding, including the changes in the weather and climate and related things. There are a multitude of other projects. FAR has been involved with the Gates Foundation in creating a National Academy of Science Award for agriculture. It never existed before. It's in physics and engineering and mathematics and a lot of other places but recognizing the power of agriculture as a science is a really important thing to let the world know as a whole that agriculture is important. Now, in addition to that, I only mentioned the FAR work because it was an idea that Congress created and uh, we're getting moving, I think, quite effectively on that. And future funding depends on farm bill uh, issues. But I would want to just mention a few major challenges facing food and agriculture 
and new research, uh, how to address them. My first challenge is the challenge of talent, research talent. Not so much a science-based issue from a traditional way, but we need the best and brightest minds addressing today's challenges. According to a Purdue University study, an average of 35,000 new U.S. graduates with expertise in food agriculture and renewable and renewable natural resources or the environment uh, are expected to fill 61% of the expected 58,000 average annual openings for the next five years. There's some positive trends that we're moving ahead on these areas, but having human talent, and that of course is based on a, a whole litany of educational experiences, an extension system that's modern, that Chicago Council is working on, that, um, uh, but having the talent is critical to having an agriculture that is very future-oriented. And so we need to attract more talent to food and agriculture. And we, are, we at, at, at FAR have awarded a, uh, a basically, give, we're giving a substantive first grant to early career scientists working on innovative solutions to today's uh, pressing food and agriculture challenges. So talent, human beings, is one of the first major challenges. The second is malnutrition including biofortification of foods eaten in areas affected by malnutrition and what has proven successful and what hasn't, both in the United States and elsewhere. How to use new genetic engineering and related technologies to produce better foods, more modern foods, healthier foods, foods that have, can have nutraceutical capabilities to them. We know about the vitamin A deficiency and how that's been dealt with in part by the Gates Foundation and their grants. We also know that, that USDA ARS is, is doing a, a great deal of outreach in, in this area. The third area is new pests and pathogens. So one of the asteroids, I talk about these asteroids that come down to Earth that could destroy us all and we wouldn't know the difference. Well, we would know the difference, but, but we wouldn't be here once that would happen. Is our, in our path to secure a food future is the potential threat of new pests and pathogens that might develop under changing weather and climate conditions. So when we talk about climate, it's just too easy to say we need to spend more money on climate. What we need to say is we need to say how climate change will affect production, agriculture, breeding of animals, and breeding of plants. Um, so we're at FAR, we're looking at first uh, response research funding in the face of new and uh, emerging pests and pathogens in the U.S. USDA is also working on a lot of these uh, uh, things as well. A fifth area is in the area of hunger and obesity uh, issues. How we deal with this conundrum of enough calories distributed wrongly and in the wrong places. And um, we actually produce enough calories in this world. They're not distributed as fairly as they should be. In many cases, the calorie-dense foods uh, don't make people any healthier and, healthier. and the level of type 2 diabetes and related um, uh, non-communicable diseases are growing rather exponentially in the developing world, particularly cancer, heart disease, and type 2 di diabetes. Very fast-growing diseases in the developing world. Of course, we're dealing with those ourselves. What can we be doing in agriculture and in food production that will, in fact, help to alleviate that particular problem? And then, uh, I'm almost finished, but I want to mention two other things. The rising power of consumer preference 
and the, uh, and the effect on our farming practices. That is a huge deal. So more and more because of, I'm trying to find my smartphone, which you all have, more and more because of these things, people either know, want to know, or will know what something is, where it comes from, what it's made of, what the food safety risks are, and how it affects their health and their income and their basically choices in life. And that, you know, somebody once asked me, what's the most important force in agriculture today? And there really isn't one. I mean, you say farmers, yes. But really, if you think about it carefully, a company like Walmart has, and others have this incredible power uh, from the consumer to determine what is eaten and what farmers produce. And it can change on a dime in this modern world, particularly with modern social media. So as we look at this, we see that the voice of the consumer is stronger than ever. Sometimes it is not always as well educated. Sometimes alternative facts get their way into the subject matter. But notwithstanding that, just to say that the consumer is wrong is not necessarily a good way to deal with the with the uh, problems. There are trade-offs involved in all of these decisions and science and better communication is needed to empower consumers to make informed choices. Giant challenge for agriculture, giant challenge on the research side of the picture as well. And a final point has to do with labor shortages. This is not really a science issue per se, but we can't afford to let food go unharvested with 41 million food insecure people in the United States. We have to deal with the fact that we need, I'm not going to say open borders, but we need reasonably open borders. Uh, uh, we need bridges and not walls in order to encourage people to produce the kind of food we need in this country. And a, a wall around America will impact agriculture more than about any other segment of the American economy. So um, we have to look at the variety of answers to the problem of, of labor shortages and the immigration issue, including reasonable immigration policies, and in addition, robotics, and, um, and other, uh, 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 other, other things, automation, other things in the field that, that, that could make uh, uh, some choices. All of this is, operates within the ambit of climate change, weather variability, whatever you call it, it's happening. We have to figure out a way to adapt to it, and science is the way to do it. So let me just close by saying this is a very exciting area. Um, U.S. has to be, continue to be the leader, but to do that we have to have the talent and the budgets and the priority-setting mechanism so that people think what we're doing is in the same level of importance as what other people in the scientific community are doing. If we don't do that, we will always be playing second fiddle to those other parts of the research establishment. And we all relate together. So much of animal health and plant health relates to human health and ecological health and the health of the world as a whole. I mean, there are not silos dividing these kinds of things. So I guess my plea to you is continue to your push 
for adequate funding, make sure it's spent well. I learned early in life, I'll tell you a quick story. When I was in Congress, I was on the Science Committee I'm from Kansas and Wichita, and we're big aviation people. So I went to visit one of the NASA laboratories. And as part of that, I went to visit one that's been involved in materials research on airplanes. And then I went back 10 years ago, and I had my notes. And they were doing the same research that they were 10 years before. So in addition to having enough resources, adequate resources, we've got to make sure that we are, a, we are willing and able to make smart choices, intelligent choices, and, and, and sometimes um, uh, not career-changing choices, but sometimes uh, revolutionary choices to keep the, the, uh, uh, this particular industry uh, moving forward. So with, again, with the right talent, the right priorities, uh, the right push from Congress, because Congress is an ally here to us. Um, and I think even this administration will get the message. And I want to close with the following anecdote. I'm told that when President Trump decided that he wanted to pull out of the NAFTA agreement, which I don't think is necessarily a final decision yet, one way or the other, our Secretary of Agriculture, Sonny Perdue, went to the White House showed him a map of the United States, showed him the areas of agriculture production, showed him the economic impact that agriculture exports and agriculture trade had on those parts of the country, which were by and large places that tended to vote for him in large numbers. And I'm told that the president, uh, uh, if not uh, changed his mind, certainly deferred his particular decision. So for that, I congratulate uh, uh, Sonny Perdue on that. But we have, the biggest challenge we have is to make sure that we keep this as a priority issue for America. And if we do that, we will solve the problems of famine and hunger and food insecurity uh, for, for decades to come. So given that, Kimberly, I thank you for allowing me to make a few comments. I hope I didn't upset anybody here today. If I did, too bad. Anyway, th thank you all very much. Okay, isn't Dan great? I always learn something and he makes me laugh. Um, so I have a little surprise for you. We have a four-minute video that I'm going to show you. And the video, it, it, oh shoot, I left my notes, of course, that I wrote of you speaking on my chair. But the thing that you said, Dan, that stuck with me is that we haven't really told our story right. Um, and I'm not an expert in the Farm Bill, so in looking at this, I wanted to bring together some top leaders to help tell our story. And I do think that short videos like this can reach a lot more people, including congressional staff who need to better understand some of these particular issues. Um, so before I show the quick film, um, I just want to thank a couple of people, particularly the stars of the film, some of which are in the room. Um, of course, we have Dr. Bob Thompson, who uh, I'll explain later, who is also filling in on our, our panel. We have Margaret Ziegler from the Global Health Initiative, who's also here. Um, Tom Grumley, who couldn't be here today, from the SOAR Foundation. He's the president for that. And then, as Dan mentioned, Sally Rocky, who's the head of FFAR, who had to be in New York today. So without further ado, let me see if I can do the clicker right. Oh. Is sound coming? 
Its name is a little bit misleading because the Farm Bill covers much more than just farming. In fact, it covers a lot of policy ground. Here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, the Global Food Security Project wanted to look at the Farm Bill in a new way. Look at components of it that we don't think get enough attention, such as investing in agriculture research and development. This is important for a couple of reasons, particularly timing. The U.S. Farm Bill is up for reauthorization next year. Well, agricultural research in the United States is dramatically underfunded at the moment. Um, at the end of World War II, 40% uh, of all the research that the U.S. government did was agricultural research. As recently as 1970, uh, about 8% of um, non-military R&D uh, went to agricultural research, and that number is now down to lower than 4% that public support for agriculture research has eroded in recent years and as a result uh, the U.S. leadership is being lost to other countries that have significantly raised their investments in agriculture research like China, like Brazil, uh, which have significantly uh, increased their commitments to agriculture research. Now in the past five or more years China has eclipsed us in the amount of funding that they've put towards agriculture. I've, I have long felt that the most important aspect of public policy in agriculture in the United States and around the world is public investments in agricultural research because that's ultimately the basis for our competitiveness. Uh, it's also increased. Its name is a little bit misleading because the Farm Bill covers much more than just farming. In fact, it covers a lot of policy ground. Here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, the Global Food Security Project wanted to look at the Farm Bill in a new way. Look at components of it that we don't think get enough attention, such as investing in agriculture research and development. This is important for a couple of reasons, particularly timing. The U.S. Farm Bill is up for reauthorization next year. Well, agricultural research in the United States is dramatically underfunded at the moment. Um, at the end of World War II, 40% uh, of all the research that the U.S. government did was agricultural research. As recently as 1970, uh, about 8% of um, non-military R&D uh, went to agricultural research and that number is now down to lower than 4%. That public support for agriculture research has eroded in recent years and as a result, uh, the U.S. leadership is being lost to other countries that have significantly raised their investments in agriculture research, like China, like Brazil, uh, which have significantly uh, increased their commitments to agriculture research. Now, in the past five or more years, China has eclipsed us in the amount of funding that they've put towards agriculture. I've, I have long felt that the most important aspect of public policy in agriculture in the United States and around the world is public investments in agricultural research because that's ultimately the basis for our competitiveness. Uh, it's also increased productivity over time. It's a little bit concerning because we're seeing productivity increasing in some areas, but overall our global agricultural productivity index or gap index is showing that we're not gonna really meet the needs of 2050 through productivity. 
It's going to take increased agriculture research investments just to sustain present productivity levels, not to mention uh, the, the need for higher productivity in the future. What we have learned over the years through research, through um, collaborating with productivity experts at USDA and FAO, is that investing in research and development, and particularly public research and development, is probably the key way that you're going to boost your overall productivity in agriculture. In fact, it's really hard to get productivity in agriculture without research and development. So all the new exciting areas of science, whether it be robotics, our new imaging technologies, how we use big data, or even our new genetic uh, uh, biotechnologies that are coming at the forefront, are applicable to agriculture almost immediately. And we're taking those technologies and really addressing some major issues. So it's um, really been a wonderful public good that the United States System of Agricultural Research and Development has established, not only for the United States, but actually for many countries around the world. I mean, I always like to say that, that scientists have nationalities, but science doesn't have nationalities. And our issues in agriculture are global. You know, in my view, uh, food is too important to the human race to have it be an afterthought. So we have to continue to be strong, be a leader in science, fund science, and we have to make a decision as American people that we're gonna devote our resources to uh, advances in, in science and for agriculture. The domestic research that we do here in the United States can have a huge impact on our global food supply and on global food insecurity. I like to try out new things, sometimes they don't work, but that's okay. So we got the sound at the end. Um, I also want to thank Kelsey Blackenberg, who's in the back right there, for helping us produce this, as well as Ribka from our Ideas Lab. We did this in like a week. We just wanted to quickly pull together some ideas that I'm really, really proud of it. Can I go ahead and have our panelists come and join us? If you're detail-oriented, you might have noticed that Dr. Ronnie Green, the chancellor, oops, the chancellor of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, was on our invite, and unfortunately, he got called away to a professional emergency, and I got a call literally an hour ago that he was at the airport and had to head out, and I'm incredibly grateful for Dr. Robert Thompson, or Bob, who's one of our senior advisors, one of the stars of our short film, um, who was able to step in today, so thank you, Bob, for being with us. So for introductions, we have Dr. Sunny Ramaswasi, who is the head of NIFA, which is an acronym I'm sure you're going to hear a little bit today. NIFA stands for the National Institute of Food and Agriculture from USDA. He's been there for over five years. What I also like about Sonny is his background in the university system. So everything from leading Purdue's agriculture research program, as well as being the dean of Oregon State's College of Agricultural Sciences. Um, he's an academic, he's a scientist, and now a bureaucrat and is able to talk about this from a variety of perspectives. And next we'll hear from Dr. Bob Thompson. 
Bob has an array of such a background that it's always hard to introduce him. Everything from NGOs working at Winrock International to government working at USDA to multilateral working at World Bank, um, as well as from the academic perspective from universities, including also at Purdue University. And last but certainly not least, we have Dr. Susan Schrum. And Sue also has an extensive background. I think the parts of her background and the reason that I wanted to select, select Sue for this conversation was one, she's written a number of pieces um, specific to Farm Bill legislation. She understands Capitol Hill. She understands APLU, the Association of Public Land Grant Universities. She has a background in implementing partners working for ACDI VOCA. She also has worked for USDA, and she also has senior leader, leadership positions with AIARD, which is the Association of International, oh shoot, I'm gonna say it wrong. Thank you, <laughs> all of the words in one. Um, we're so grateful to have them all here with us today. Sonny, why don't you begin? All right, well. Thanks so much, uh, Kimberly, for uh, inviting us to uh, engage in this very important conversation, and my sincere thanks to uh, Secretary uh, Dan Glickman for his comments as well. And uh, so I'd like to start off by uh, saying that we have an existential threat. And some of you have heard me speak to this before. And uh, what I mean by this existential threat is it's happening now. You know, typically when we frame our conversations about uh, the topic of, you know, food and agriculture and things like that, we frame it from the perspective of in the year 2050. And we're all going to wait with bated breath and something bad's going to happen. Uh, you know, climate change and everything else is going to come to, into play. It's going to happen at that time. What's well, happening right now? And that's why I refer to it as an existential threat. And this existential threat is nutritional security. With all due respect uh, to my colleague here, Kimberly Flowers, and the uh, Center for Strategic and International Studies, you know, I'd like to encourage all of us to use the term nutritional security and not food security because the challenges that we see today is really not so much the availability of calories as much as the need to have better health outcomes as well. And so we quit using the term food security in and of itself, and we use the term nutritional security. And, and that's the, you know, that is the existential threat. And what I mean by that is, you know, today we have a population of about 7.5 billion people on Earth. And uh, tonight, we heard from IFPRI, the International Food Policy Research Institute, just recently, just a few weeks ago, that where hunger had been going down very steadily over the last couple of decades, and we were all, you know, saying, man, it's just about 800 million people that are going hungry tonight. It's now dipped up, inflected up a tad bit. And I hope it really is a statistical quirk and not something that's going to be a portent of what's going to come. And so they say it's almost 850 million people uh, that are going to bed hungry tonight. And again, it's in part because of the conflicts that we've got and climate change and things like that as well. And uh, oh, by the way, because of that, the hunger that we've got globally, uh, statistics tell us that about 29,000 people will drop dead for lack of food globally. In America, the Economic Research Service, in a report they just published in September, just a couple of months ago, tell us that we still have about 16 million households that are, at some time in the last year, food insecure. And that's almost 50 million people in the United States of America. We can feed the entire world. This town, we've got, go across the river in, in Anacostia, uh, on the other side of the Anacostia, Ward 7 and Ward 8, we're, we have, for 100,000 people, 
We've got two grocery stores. We have food deserts in America, and we have people going hungry. In fact, the Economic Research Service tells us that we've got uh, about 2.9 million households that are intensely food secure as well in the United States of America. That's a pretty sad situation that we've got. And then the flip side, oh, you know, the flip side of it is uh, we've got 1.3 billion people tonight will, before going to bed, have to take Lipitor for cholesterol, baby aspirin for heart disease, medication for hypertension, medication for type 2 diabetes. And Ursula Bauer of the Centers for Disease Control and other researchers tell us these chronic diseases that we've got are the result of excessive consumption of calories. And uh, so as a result of that, we'll have about 50,000 people globally that are going to drop dead because of metabolic disorders. And, and here in America, one in five adults has to take these medications to have some semblance of normalcy in their lives. And children in the United States, you know, we have adults we talk about, a third of our adult population is overweight, another third is obese. With children in America, where a third of our children are either overweight or obese, we've got children eight and nine years old that have to take medications for these various uh, disorders that we've got. And Ursula Bauer says, but, you know, in fact, other research has demonstrated that about 10% of it is attributable to our genetics. About 10% of it, of these metabolic disorders, are attributable to our sedentary lifestyles, et cetera, activity level. Almost 80% of it is attributable to the sheer amount of food we eat. And Ursula Bauer says, uh, uh, and others say, that 75% of America's healthcare costs are attributable to this, these chronic diseases. That's... That's the existential threat. That's happening now. And then when you combine that with uh, the perfect storm of events that are happening right now, you know, climate change, the diminishing land and water resources, and uh, conflicts, migrations, and uh, the globalization, trade, you know, movement of pathogens and like the Zika virus or mosquitoes that we have never seen before or the marmorated stink bug and the emerald ash borer that's taken out over 100 million trees in the United States of America. All this is coming together and we're trying to un understand and, and address nutritional security in the context of this anti-science, anti-intellectual environment that we've got that uh, Dan referred to as well. People on the left and the right, there's this anti-intellectual, anti-science environment. You know, people against vaccination, people against GMOs and, and, and so on. And there are people against uh, climate change and things like that. Right and left have the market cornered on this. So you take that situation that we've got. And then when you narrow it down to the level of the ecological footprint of agriculture itself, and in the video we heard about it as well, and, and uh, Dan referred to it in his comments as well, um, 80% of the fresh water we consume is in the food we consume. 20% of the energy we consume is in the food we consume. 17% of the greenhouse gases, greenhouse gases we produce is in the food we consume. Almost 80% of the ammonia we produce, a potent uh, greenhouse gas, is in the food we consume as well. That's the ecological footprint. So in this context of this perfect storm, we gotta figure out how best to reduce that uh, ecological footprint as well. And so, so at the core of this effort, really, of what we talk about, the farm bill and things like that, and Dan eloquently pointed that out, is our farmers. We got the farmers and we got the consumers. We got two groups that we've got to be concerned about. When you look at it from the farmer's perspective, it's not just productivity. We talk about productivity, you know, we got to double, you know, with photosynthesis, you know, we're going to incorporate C4 photosynthesis into rice plants and things like that. It's not just about doubling productivity. 
We've got to be concerned about profitability as well of our farming systems. In fact, we've seen farm incomes have gone down very significantly in the last three or four or five years or so. And a consequence of that is also the, you know, the aging of our farm population. So we've got to be very, very concerned about those things that we're thinking about, the research enterprise and the farm bill itself. That's one part of it. The other part of it is the consumers. And, you know, we've got to talk about uh, access to food, the affordability of food, the assimilability, as I say, the physiological changes that take place, particularly in children, you know, the 1,000 days of development that we've got to be concerned about as well. So when you juxtapose those two things and then, you know, think of the existential threat that we've got and the ecological footprint that we've got to mitigate and things like that, you know, our task is going to be really, really seriously affected uh, if the farm bill, if we don't come to grips with what we need to do. Just a couple thoughts about uh, the path forward. I mean, I don't want to leave you with the thing that, oh my gosh, what are we going to do about all this? You know, it's going to be a mess that we've got and, uh, uh, and that we've got to address this, this mess as well. So, so obviously, uh, there's, a, there's some uh, transformative discoveries that we need. The pretty cool part, and in fact, you know, Dan pulled out his, uh, uh, his smartphone and things like that. There's, I like to say there's a convergence that has happened in regards to biotechnology, in regards to nanotechnology, in regards to cognitive uh, 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 efforts that we've got. In uh, all of this information technology and things like that, all of these are coming together. There's a convergence that's taking place. So if you look at the possibilities of you know, developing these smart systems combined with the genetics and genomics and all these other things that we've got, uh, robo you know, robotics and uh, drones and uh, nanotechnology, and I can go on and on about this as well, maybe in the question and answer that you're going to ask me those. There's a, an incredible level of convergence that's taking place that NIFA and the Agricultural Research Service and others of us in the land-grant universities, the academic community and the private sector, we're all you know, trying to apply our best skills and knowledge to. So that's the transformative discoveries. But it's not to leave it's not to say that all we need are transformative discoveries. We need a whole bunch of PhDs running around discovering all new knowledge. If that knowledge ends up in a book or a journal or whatever, it's worthless. We've got to translate that knowledge into innovations and solutions and deliver to the end users. We do that through Cooperative Extension Service, this incredibly American, quintessentially American invention. And others are coming to America to want to learn about it. And we've lost a third of our footprint in our extension efforts across the United States of America. We should all wake up and smell the coffee and be very, very concerned that we've allowed our extension community to, to lose its uh, ability. So the 21st century extension. I'm not talking about just the hand-holding that takes place like we used to do 50 years ago. But it's a combination of things, depending on the context that you're in, the kind of extension, the, the tr knowledge translation and delivery that we've got to develop, including the use of... Uh, technology itself to reach out to audiences that uh, utilize different types of, uh, you know, receiving and using knowledge itself. We need efforts in transformative education. Again, you know, Dan referred to the study that Purdue University did. We funded it. NIFA funded it. And for every two jobs, there's one graduate in America. And it's only getting exacerbated uh, here. And by the way, the education, I like to say, is in four different domains. Dan referred to the fact that we need you know, smart people to invent and discover and innovate and things like that. That's one domain, the research and the scientific enterprise. A second domain is the workforce itself that goes into, you know, getting into, there are lots of jobs being created, not just in the, you know, in the, in the private sector, the non-governmental sector, just within the U.S. Department of Agriculture, 
We're gonna, we turn over 7% of our jobs every year. We have almost, to make the math easy on me, 100,000 employees in USDA. That's 7,000 people that are leaving or dying or retiring or whatever. We need to replace those as well. They're going to have, going to, have to have the skills and knowledge. The third domain is in the world of uh, 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 extension itself. So we've created these efforts to make sure that our extension efforts are not going to be lost here in America. I truly believe that our global preeminence is not only about the discoveries that we make, but also the fact that we translate it and deliver it as well. And the fourth domain is somebody has to grow those crops and raise those livestock animals. So we have the Beginning Farmers and Ranchers Development Initiative as part of the Farm Bill itself. And, and the discoveries that we make, the knowledge that we generate, needs to be translated and delivered to those people. And we've got to make sure that they're going to be profitable as well. I cannot say enough about the need to enhance the profitability. The National Agricultural Statistics Survey says in the 2012 survey, Ag Census survey, that the average age of the American farmer is 58.3 years of age. The next survey that's going to come out next year is going to tell us it's going to have you know, gone up further. But, but the Beginning Farmers and Ranchers Development Initiative and other efforts help us address those kinds of things as well. And then you know, there's on and on about policies and regulations that we need to think of uh, about uh, farming systems. You know, Dan referred to the vertical farms. I gave the keynote address for that group here just last month in Washington, D.C. As long as humanity is around, as long as we hit the 9.5 or 10 or 12 or 15 billion people, agriculture is going to be the Norman Rockwell imagery in the, in the horizontal domain. Yeah, controlled environment agriculture and vertical farming and all that are going to be a small part of our toolkit. And we've got to invest in those, the resources to get the kind of knowledge that we need as well. And last but not least, again, in the film we talked, uh, we talked about it as well. This is a well-kept secret. Only, you know, about 1% uh, to 1.5% of the population, about 4 million people in America actually grow the food. There are 21 million jobs that are attributable to the food and agricultural systems. But really, the 99% of the population has no clue about the food. We've got to do everything we can to remove this veil of secrecy that surrounds this amazing enterprise. Every man, woman, and child needs to eat. Every man, woman, and child needs to breathe in air. Every man, woman, and child needs to drink water, et cetera. And that's, that's what this Farm Bill issue is all about. So NIFA's focus, USDA's focus, really, we have the intramural science part of it which is Agricultural Research Service and Economic Research Service, and the extramural science part of it, which is really represented by NIFA. And, and our role is really to help discover those, those great innovations that we need, the education that we need, the, the extension efforts that we need as well. And so there are several areas that we need, and I hope we have some questions about it, is not just the innovations and all, but also the infrastructure. We have incredible decrepitude in America of the infrastructure. Again, we heard about China surpassing the United States in the research investments. If you look at their infrastructure, it's mind-boggling. We built our infrastructure uh, in the 19th and 20th centuries. And you go on these campuses across America, you see the crappy infrastructure. You see the crappy infrastructure uh, ARS has got across America as well. We've really walked away from making those investments. And the return on investment is 20 to 1 for every dollar invested. So if you get a chance to read a report that came out just last year, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development did a report just last year on what is at stake for the United States and the Western world. And uh, Phil Pardee at the University of Minnesota has done an outstanding article in uh, Nature just this past year as well that tells you what's at stake as well. 
And it requires new partnerships. And Dan referred to the Foundation for Food and Agriculture Research. And we have a lot of partnerships. We partner with the, NS, the National Science Foundation, with ARPA-E, with DARPA, with NIH. We work on the opioid abuse, for example, in America, which is a scourge that we have in this country as well. That's part of our portfolio of things that we're doing through, uh, through extension. With the private sector, with the commodity groups and others as well, it's really going to take, to create this innovation ecosystem we need, we need to crowdsource the best intellectual resources and the best monetary resources as well. And so aspirationally, as we're talking about the Farm Bill and things like that, we have a lot of things that we're talking about across America, about the biosecurity of our food systems. Uh, that is critically important. That's what keeps me up at night, that something bad could happen to our food systems. And uh, along with that is nutrition and nutrition education, addressing the obesity scourge that we've got. Uh, youth development, 4-H is the, the example of that. Uh, Minority-serving institutions. America is demographically very different than it was a few years ago. We've got to make sure that we're going to address those needs as well. And, uh, and last but not least is the infrastructure itself. I want to go ahead and stop there, and, and thanks again, uh, Kimberly, for having me here. Thank you, Thank you so much, Sonny. Let's go ahead and move on to Bob. Bob? Okay. Thanks. I'll get you back. No, sorry. <laughs> Okay, thanks very much, Kimberly, and I'm delighted to have a chance to uh, participate and uh, fill in the uh, uh, first speaker who got called away. I'm particularly pleased because, as I said in the video, I do believe that uh, one of the most important uh, investments we make in our farm bills is the investment in or the public investment in agricultural R&D. Uh, as far as my background and why I think this, you know, I grew up on a small family dairy farm in northern New York State and uh, grew up, uh, we relied a lot on our extension staff, we uh, worked in, on some cooperative research projects with Cornell, uh, dairy scientists as well as agronomists. I went to Cornell and Purdue for my uh, undergraduate and graduate work spent the first half of my career at Purdue on the faculty, mainly involved in teaching and research, and then uh, the tail end of my career in teaching research and extension at the University of Illinois, and had the privilege of serving six and a half years as dean of the Ag College at Purdue uh, from the late uh, 70s to the early, early 90s. So uh, I've seen the land-grant system from many sides, and I think one of the great institutional innovations uh, of the United States uh, was creation of the land-grant university where we married under one roof the teaching, research, and extension functions because of the high degree of complementarity that exists among those functions and, uh, and frankly, the political genius of the shared funding that was put in place right from the beginning, the shared funding of research between federal and state governments, the shared funding of research between the county, state, and federal governments. And as a result, we institutionalized a feedback mechanism in which that system was uh, very responsive to the local needs and, uh, and concerns of farmers because ultimately the tools of science are footloose, footloose and mobile, uh, but agriculture technologies tend to be uh, quite location specific. And so we need to be able to apply the, the tools of science at the local level to solve the local problems. But the way we involve the county extension boards in the hiring and firing of extension agents, such that they, uh, if they didn't deliver 
on uh, improved technologies and didn't convey the research needs to campus and back to the local producers, uh, the, the extension agent didn't last. So I think it was a real political genius that designed the land-grant university system, and it's, uh, it's a system that countries all over the world have attempted uh, to emulate, but few have succeeded uh, in, uh, in completely copying uh, the success. The success because despite the fact that we have some of the finest soils in the world in parts of the United States uh, that are well watered by nature, uh, that's only part of the competitiveness story of American agriculture. But it's, that, uh, it's those natural resources together with educated uh, farmers, uh, uh, to get together with uh, the, uh, the publicly developed agriculture research that accounted for a great deal of our agricultural development, and in turn, our uh, uh, our, uh, our shining product uh, productivity and competitiveness in the world. In fact, that's what brought the Brazilian government to make the to start in the 70s, uh, significantly increasing their public investment in attempting to emulate the United States. And they've come from nowhere to being uh, major exporters significant competitors in corn, beans, poultry, pork, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, in the international market. And as has been pointed out several times, China, of course, passed us almost a decade ago in their commitment of public resources for agricultural research. But these uh, public, the public support for agricultural research started to wane in the late 1980s, or seven, in the late 1970s, and the private sector stepped in quickly to pick up the slack uh, where the, the public sector uh, was leave, leaving off. But of course, the private sector is only going to uh, invest in agricultural research if uh, the research results in some product that farmers uh, will buy, because uh, otherwise there's no means of paying for, for the research investment and, and providing a return uh, to their shareholders. Now, it was a fairly fundamental shift for us to go from the taxpayers paying for agriculture research and technology transfer through extension to one where the cost of the R&D would be built into the seed we buy or the other agricultural inputs we buy. Uh, but uh, I would argue that uh, we've probably allowed the pendulum to swing too far, whereas it probably made sense for most of our agricultural R&D to be done by the public sector and made freely available with no patents, in fact, with an extension system to push the new innovations out into practice. Uh, but it probably, uh, as American agriculture matured and farm family incomes uh, in the 70s came to match for the first time in our history, the uh, incomes of people in the non-farm uh, sector, uh, maybe it made sense for farmers to bear more of the cost of their agricultural R&D. But we have to keep in mind that there's, there's health in a balance between public and private uh, sourcing of our agricultural technologies. Uh, and uh, there are a couple of other reasons. One, there are many areas of research that don't result in something that farmers will buy that would pay for the research. And as a result, uh, there are many important research questions that will not get answered if it's all left to the private sector. And uh, the other strong argument that I would make for why we need 
uh, significant continued investment in the public sector in agricultural R&D is the complementarity between graduate training in research of researchers uh, and uh, production of new technologies. Um, that where's the private sector going to find the new, new uh, PhDs who have been taken to the cutting edge of knowledge if the universities are not uh, adequately funded to be carrying out agriculture research that takes those students to the cutting edge of knowledge. Because the private sector uh, can't do the research if it doesn't have the well-trained scientists to, uh, uh, to carry out that, uh, that uh, research. But uh, as I've said, there may be arguments for relying more on the private sector uh, when a country reaches the point in an economic development of the United States. But when we look around the world in presently low-income countries, uh, where 70% where of the extreme poverty in the world is in rural areas, and, uh, uh, and about 70% of that poverty, or, or probably closer to 90% of that poverty uh, in rural areas is among farmers, uh, that uh, they're, not, they're not in position to pay for the R&D that it's going to take to develop uh, agriculture in those countries. But yet, when we look at the, at the projected increase in demand for food in the world, with the combination of population growth, income growth, and urbanization, changing diets, and, uh, and contributing to the accelerating growth and demand for food, we're probably going to have to grow two-thirds more food by the middle of the century. And as has been pointed out by uh, a couple of speakers already today, uh, production of more nutrient-dense foods are going to be extremely important in meeting, in meeting that, future, uh, that future demand. Uh, but we have to look at the, at the resource constraints on, 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 that, on, the, on the, our capacity to produce that larger uh, food production, where there's at most 10% more land that can be brought into production uh, worldwide without cutting trees. Uh, and there's probably going to be less water available with which to produce two-thirds more food. So if you've got to grow two-thirds more food on at most 10% more land, if we don't want massive destruction of forests and with them loss of wildlife habitat, loss of biodiversity, loss of, uh, uh, loss of, uh, of uh, carbon sequestration capacity, then we've got to raise productivity. Those are the alternatives. We either raise productivity on the, uh, or we, uh, we destroy trees. But with the, uh, but probably water scarcity is going to be even more important. With the rapid growth of cities, we see, farmer, we see cities successfully bidding water away from farmers. And as a result, if we have to grow two-thirds two more food using less total water than today, we've got to significantly increase the, the efficiency with which the, we use the water we use in agriculture. And uh, that's going to require increased uh, increase investments in research to increase the water use efficiency of plants. Uh, this involves basic technology, basic uh, basic plant science, as well as as uh, as engineering technology for increasing uh, efficiency of water of, of water use. But um, this is uh, this is talking about what it's going to take to meet the increased demand for food in the world. But with climate change, all agroecosystems are shifting, uh, and in fact. Uh, 
as I said, whereas, whereas the, the, the tools of science are footloose and mobile in the world, uh, agriculture technologies need to be optimized for local ag agroecological conditions. So as all agroecosystems shift, uh, it's going to take increased investments in agricultural R&D just to sustain present productivity levels, not to mention the potential increase of perhaps by as much as two-thirds in productivity that it's going to take uh, to produce that larger supply of food in a world in which climatic zones are, are shifting. And the, uh, the other factor in climate change that may be at least as important is the increased frequency of extreme climatic events and extreme flooding, extreme droughts, and as we have increased frequency of extreme climatic events, increased resilience in the crops we produce, uh, increased hardiness, increased ability to tolerate extreme conditions is going to be fundamentally uh, important. So I will argue that we need balance between public and private sector in agricultural research investments in the high-income countries, and we need significantly more investment in agricultural R&D in the public sector to address the problems of low-income countries of the world, to address the problems of poverty in, uh, in, among uh, farmers in low-income countries, but in particular to, be, uh, to help those countries achieve the food supply, uh, the nutrient-dense food supply that it's going to take for the future. So we need support for agricultural R&D in both our farm bill, but also in our foreign aid programs. And I just want to speak to the, the latter briefly, that it was in the mid-1980s that, uh, that the uh, participation of agriculture and foreign aid programs started declining. And uh, it reached a low, uh, it reached a low uh, just a few years ago, uh, where agriculture almost fell off the global development agenda. Uh, we desperately need to restore the commitment to investing in agricultural R&D in the public sector through our foreign aid programs uh, in order to, uh, to ensure that we solve the problems that need to be solved in presently low-income countries. So bottom line, I will uh, argue that agricultural R&D investments are the most important investment we make in our farm bill, but probably also the most important investments we make through our foreign aid. And unfortunately, uh, in farm bills, farm organizations talk a good line about the importance of agricultural research, but when push comes to shove, it's only after they've adequately taken care of protecting their, their subsidies and income transfers and uh, subsidies to uh, crop insurance uh, that if there are a few coins left on the table, uh, they'll make a good case for putting more into agriculture R&D. Uh, I, w I wish that uh, they'd put their money where their mouth is when they talk about uh, the importance of agricultural R&D uh, and, uh, and seek a, more of a balance between public or between support for agricultural support programs as well as R&D investments. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. Before we move on to Sue, I want to show you quickly um, 
this this slide. So this is this is taken from I see Tim Fink in the audience. You can wave Tim so those people know who you are. This is from the SOAR report. So the Supporters of Agriculture Research report that came out recently. And I think when you hear you know someone like Dan or or Sonny and Bob make this comment, I think it's important to look at the very small percentage that USDA R&D gets compared to other types of R&D from other agencies. I find that a pretty compelling visual. Sue, what are we missing? We've covered a lot of ground. Talk to us, um, and I'll talk to us specifically about the legislation. Okay, great. Well, thank you, Kimberly, and it's a real honor to be on the panel today. I struggled with what might be my unique contribution with all these august uh, colleagues here on the panel, and I thought it might be important for me to talk about some education and advocacy activities around the Farm Bill. And, you know, agricultural R&D is extremely complicated. Sometimes it's very complicated even to us who are in it. Uh, and so how do you really talk about this in a way that taxpayers understand the importance of their investment and in a way that policymakers who might not even be in the inner circle on ag development issues understand? And so my core message today is really going to be that international collaboration is essential for a thriving and healthy U.S. agriculture sector and that this is how the United States can show its leadership, go farther faster, and leverage its R&D resources. And this can be done through the Farm Bill and is an excellent investment for the United States taxpayer. So my focus will be on international agriculture and rural development and how the investments that we make through the domestic budget and through the foreign assistance budget work together and how we help people here and how we help people overseas at the same time. And as you mentioned, Sonny and Bob, what a great deal it is really for the American taxpayer. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about AIARD, as Kimberly mentioned, the Association for International Ag and Rural Development. Some of our members are sitting in the audience today. And we are a professional association. We have members from universities, from the government, from NGOs, from the private sector. Anyone who has spent a career in international ag and rural development can be a member of AIARD. Um, we have worked for years on this whole theme of win-win international collaboration. It's a thread that has run through uh, many of our pieces that we've done, really documenting how the United States investment in international ag research, extension, and education helps very many needy people overseas and also brings benefits back to the United States. We began this work a number of years ago with a publication called Food, the Whole World's Business. And we wanted to talk about food. As has been mentioned many times on the panel today, who cannot relate to the need for food? When you start a conversation with whether or not you have food or the right kinds of food or enough food, uh, it, it captures people's attention. Everyone has to deal with this issue. It's much more than starting with the, better than starting with the complexities of agriculture. So we did a, a series of case studies years ago, but this year we realized that we were really kind of at a unique juncture. The Farm Bill, of course, was coming up. Um, we have a new administration. We have ongoing appropriations challenges, even to keep what we have, uh, particularly on the foreign assistance side. 
And global food and nutrition security is much more accepted now as a whole of government um, operation. It did not used to be that way when I was working for the Assistant Secretary. Uh, we had to kind of uh, not exactly brag a lot about what we did internationally because it was viewed as a domestic agency. I think things have changed considerably. Uh, we also saw a need for educational efforts to educate the American taxpayer. Goodness, this relates to all of our relatives in the Midwest when we try to describe what it is that we do. But uh, international ag investments, it's not just money that's given, you know, quote, to others, but our domestic investments work hand in hand with our foreign assistance investment toward global food security and also to come back and to benefit us. So. We did what Washington people do. We wrote a white paper. It actually turned out to be light green, but it's considered a white paper called Smart Investments in International Ag and Rural Development. And you can get a copy here, or there's also one online at AIARD.org if you prefer to download it. But we really wanted to step back and take a look at what kind of world we want. And uh, Earlier in the video, someone says that when you look at something, I think it was uh, Mr. Grumley, uh, something as important as the food that sustains us and the science and education that powers agricultural innovation, we really have to enhance our collaborative research and development platforms internationally. Now, this report that we did is fairly unique. Uh, first of all, we are a group of implementers, and our people in AIARD are on the front lines overseas. They deal with these challenges every day, and they really know what they're talking about. Sometimes their voices don't reach policymakers. Our report is unique because it highlights a package of investments, and they're what we call smart investments that are both domestic and foreign assistance, and they both need to be made together. And we also emphasize that many U.S. and global partners are going to have to learn how to work together more easily together, the public and the private sectors in particular, in order to reach these sustainable development goals. This is not a technical report. It's a report that tells a story. It's a report that tells a story that helps regular people understand how all of this works, hopefully. So in our IARD report, we talk about five smart win-win areas for investment. And S-M-A-R-T, we did this so everyone could remember this, but actually it helps us to remember it too when we're talking about it. S stands for security and stability. An investment in agriculture, where most of the people work in the developing world, really increases the uh, help for the primary source of livelihoods, and it also comes back to reduce threats to our own country. And in this section, we also develop uh, an argument about the importance of humanitarian investments that go hand in hand with economic growth investments. Markets and trade, it was mentioned earlier on the panel, uh, we need to keep our markets open for the great profits that come back to our farmers. And we also need to help uh, with technical assistance overseas because those folks are our future trade customers. A is for adaptation and conservation. I feel like I should be singing this, you know, S is for the... <laughs> uh, and that is if we can somehow facilitate greater work on environmental issues that cross borders. Someone mentioned the air we breathe and the natural resources we use, that we can learn a lot from each other and help farmers improve their techniques. 
R, of course, is for research and innovation, increasing research and innovation investments to bring new jobs and increase productivity both to developing countries and the U.S. And T is for training and education. Um, our foreign assistance portfolio has very rightfully en uh, emphasized basic education for many years, but we think now that the balance needs to be brought back to emphasize higher education. It's been a very small piece of the pie but if we are going to have uh, culturally relevant agriculture in developing countries uh, and the talent that can expedite that, we are going to have to move the balance over to higher education and work hand in hand with research. Um, the CGIAR also has a new publication that is on the table out front. It's called Five Wins from Collaboration. And this publication supports the same set of arguments really beautifully. I'm sure most of our audience is familiar with the CGIAR, but it is a system of 15 research centers around the world that conducts international ag research and it's supported by multinational donors, including quite a significant contribution from the United States. And the CGI, we all work together on reducing poverty, enhancing food and nutrition security, and improving natural resources and ecosystem services. And this piece focuses on just exactly how the United States wins by working with the CGIR across the globe. And you can certainly read it for yourself, but just let me review those areas. Uh, increasing global impact from U.S. research, assuring safe, healthy diets across the globe, improving global food production systems, creating jobs in the U.S. and overseas, and contributing to U.S. and global security. So within these areas and in this document, I'd like to have you review this with an eye for some really stunning facts. 60% um, of the wheat that is planted in this country is planted from CGIR varieties and comes from the kinds of international collaboration that we've been talking about. For every dollar that the United States has provided to the CGIR over its lifetime, the return on investment is $17, an excellent ROI. And one of my favorite stories, using CGIR breeding lines, scientists save the world wheat crop by stopping the spread of UG99, a virulent wheat stem rust that threatened 80% of the global wheat supply, including the United States crop. I love visuals and I served on the ACARTA board, which is one of the CGIR centers, and they showed me this visual, and I thought, oh, my goodness. On this side in 2010, you have UG99 and how it was spreading. This is the Horn of Africa, and this is kind of the before and after, and after the international research collaboration that took place, here's 2013. There are practically no spots left. Uh, to me, uh, when I saw this diagram, uh, this just is a total uh, rationale for keeping a global research system in place to deal with this kind of crisis. If UG99 had come up and we had to create a global research system to address this problem, we'd probably still be working on creating it, but it was in place. This is work of ICARTA and CIMIT, two centers with the Ethiopian Ag Research System, with whom we've had excellent relationships. I don't know. I, I don't know how people can argue with these things. Of course, we think they're wonderful, but how can you argue with this? This is our food supply. This is wheat. This is bread. This is everyone's livelihood. 
So let me just finish by uh, talking about how this pl is playing out in the farm bill. And Sonny, I'm going to talk about NEFA a little bit, but don't worry, it's all good. <laughs> um, in the farm bill discussions, uh, AIARD, of course, joins the huge chorus of so many people um, supporting AFRI, the Agriculture uh, Food Research Initiative. Uh, at USDA, and of course, many of the supporters are here in this room. We have people from SOAR, APLU and the land-grant universities, the Farm Journal Foundation, the Friends of AFRI agree, et cetera. They all agree that this is an absolutely important thing to uh, increase the resources for AFRI. So, Sonny, we sure hope that happens. And the Farm Bill authorizes those resources. Um, APLU has written an important report called The Challenge of Change, which contends that the research needs to be much more transdisciplinary. We need to bring people in from other than the usual suspects to work on uh, food and agriculture research. Um, there is a lot going on already that involves international work at USDA. Of course, NEFA's programs in collaboration with the land-grant universities, ARS, the Forest Service, we've heard about FAR, we've heard about ERS, uh, Foreign Ag Service, all have programs. But the international portion is relatively small. Uh, we learned recently from our friend Miley Gonzalez, who runs the international programs for NEFA, that uh, there is... Inter uh, I'm sorry, Otto got <laughs> I'm so sorry, Otto. Otto's probably listening. <laughs> Presently, all across NEFA, grant awardees have identified that there is international collaboration or activity in only 3% of active NEFA awards, and we think that this could really be uh, increased significantly. So I, I would say uh, that the U.S. can only maintain its leadership position by adding resources to and internationalizing its domestic programs. So related to the Farm Bill, uh, AIARD and other organizations definitely support uh, something that the Farm Journal is promoting, and that's a recommendation to add international language to Section 1402 of the Farm Bill to strengthen the international aspects of NEFA, ARS, and other agencies. And Section 1402, for those of you who are not familiar, is about the purposes of agriculture research, extension, and education. And we feel that there could be a number five added that would say support international scientific collaboration to advance food and agriculture interests of the United States. Of course, this collaboration would happen around mutual benefit. There would be a, science in another a scientist in another country who had an interest that connected with a scientist in our country. But for the purposes of the Farm Bill, since that's about domestic programs, we talk about this being in our own interest. So this, we think, would show that international work at USDA is encouraged, not just permitted. Right now, there's nothing that keeps people from collaborating internationally but it's not really encouraged. So we feel if policymakers took, a, took kind of a bold step forward and encouraged international collaboration, that perhaps more scientists would understand the uh, uh, possibilities that are available. Of course, we'd love to see a program to strengthen the capacity of our young people in the United States to work internationally. We've talked a lot about jobs uh, today, who is going to fill these jobs and so on. We've had a number of different programs. We had ISE at USDA. We've had a CGIR linkages program at USAID. And these all encourage new scientists, young scientists, to get involved 
and to really increase the United States capacity, we don't have those anymore, and we think that that is worth uh, thinking about. How are we really going to do this? And while strictly not related to Farm Bill uh, efforts, I do want to applaud Sonny's leadership and Otto's leadership uh, in developing the recent exchange of letters with the CGIR system. And this is going to encourage work on issues of mutual interest between the CGIR and scientists in the United States, particularly at the land-grant universities. And this could include uh, NEFA scientists who receive NEFA awards. Uh, Land-grant university scientists could spend time at CGIR centers, perhaps on a sabbatical or something like that and also that they can do more collaborative scientific work. So ultimately, perhaps um, a U.S. scientist will work with a CJIR scientist to make a proposal through AFRI or other venues. And this would really accelerate our work toward our goals. So um, in conclusion, I guess I would say that all of the innovation we need in agriculture will not come from our own labs here in the United States. International collaboration in ag R&D is, to me, not an optional part of domestic policy. It is an imperative, and it needs more resources devoted to it. Thank you. I do notice that it's 5 o'clock and I rarely go over. So if you need to depart, we will fully understand. I also am going to, which I rarely do, extend this for 10 more minutes. Um, I have a long list of questions that I'm gonna throw out the window, which is very hard for me to do. That's not true, I'm gonna ask you one, Sue. Uh -oh. um, but I do wanna give the audience, I know we're over time, but if you wanna stick around for a few minutes and ask a few questions, we welcome that. Um, to Sue, my question for you is that tomorrow I have a meeting with staff from Stabenow's office as well as Conway's office, and they tell me that you know the research and development component of the Farm Bill has real bipartisan support. And so my question is, is that true? Um, and why is that? Do you, do you feel like the R&D component does have, and you're saying yes, so that's good. Does it have real bipartisan support? I feel that it does. Uh, I, I worked for uh, Sonny's predecessor at USDA years ago, and we always, and at the land grants as well, we always saw this as a real white hat issue. Uh, and I think we've had bipartisan support for years. Now, why, uh, Bob raises the question of why we're still, you know, that tiny little sliver, but um, uh, uh, it doesn't seem to expand that much, but we definitely have bipartisan support. Bob might want to comment. Well, remember, farm bills are authorizing legislation. Oh, sorry. Uh, farm bills are authorizing legislation, not appropriations. And we frequently had authorizing legislation for at least twice as much as ever got appropriated in various iterations. Uh, so, uh, and that's where the farm organizations come in. Uh, they'll, they'll, as I say, they'll talk a good line about, uh, but uh, when push comes to shove in appropriations, it doesn't get delivered. But I must, I must say some, one thing in response, and that is that I've seen something really incredible happening in the past few years, and that is the congressional support on the foreign assistance side for the Global Food Security Act. And uh, when I was at APLU, we had maybe five people that we talked to on Capitol Hill about appropriations and authorization who really understood us and who would support us. They were wonderful people, really powerful people. But now we have this huge group that is really committed to the Global Food Security Act. So when the president's budget cuts, very severe, very severe budget cuts, and it still is not resolved for 2017, came through, 
we found that the Congress and quite a large number of people in the Congress were on our side and were speaking for us and are now trying to bring it back. So I think this is good progress. Yeah. So uh, unequivocally, there's incredible support in Congress, uh, both amongst the authorizers and the appropriators. The appropriators, uh, you know, say, well, where's the money? I mean, really, you know, America is indebted to the tune of about $20 trillion. And uh, so it's a challenge. I think it really comes down to choices that we make collectively as Americans as to the fact that innovations and education are going to get us ahead of the game. And I think that's critically important. And I think it's a, a failure to demonstrate the value proposition. Uh, and, and, you know, talking about uh, farm groups and such, Again, they're going to be, you know, focused on the areas that they are interested in, and then the research and development, extension, et cetera, education comes in as an afterthought. And and but I think you know there's this movement uh, that the, the SOAR group has really helped coalesce this disparate groups of individuals to come together to push forward and, and demonstrate the value proposition. And we've been doing that as well, really d demonstrating what kind of value we get, not just the return on investment. Give you one example of that. We provided funding to George Dubkovsky, uh, a, a team led by George Dubkovsky at uh, UC Davis and multiple institutions, ARS and all that. It was a $20 million grant built on multiple grants previously, and it constitutes 20% of the U.S. wheat acreage, even with the depressed farm income. You know, wheat's around $4.40 or whatever per bushel today. It's $1.8 billion return to our farmers, okay? So we gotta keep talking about those sorts of really incredible returns that we've got and, and demonstrate the value proposition, whether it's in the domestic context or in the international context, particularly when it comes to national security and things like that too. Yeah. Let's go to the audience. We'll just have time for one round. So raise your hand if you have a question or a comment. I, of course, you have to keep it brief. No questions or comments. Let's do Catherine Bertini in the back and then we'll go uh, Margaret and Emmy, yes. We Thank do you. have a live webcast, so please introduce yourself. I'm Catherine Bertini, and I appreciate the, the emphasis on R&D internationally, and especially the role of the CG system. And uh, I, I, it's the first I heard, Sue, that there's actually a proposal to amend the Farm Bill in a small way, at least to promote international research. So I'm just wondering if smart minds could spend more time thinking of other ways to make proposals like that within the Farm Bill to try to to try to put more emphasis on uh, the support American, the necessary American support for development of uh, agricultural uh, innovations overseas, whether through the CG system or in some other way. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you, you emphasize it, and, and Bob, you're, you're um, talking about it, but I, I just think we could do more things to be even more creative. Thank you. Let's get all, and then we'll have every, we'll have a response, Margaret. Thank you, Margaret Ziegler, Global Harvest Initiative. Great, great panel. Oh, I have to stand up. Okay, <laughs> sorry. Um, I I've spent some time last week with um, some folks on the consumer side, and I I still feel that a lot of times in our our efforts to push forward funding, both in the farm bill and on the appropriation side for R and D, we're still kind of a, a pretty tight group. And I think it would be really important maybe to hear from some of you on what are some of the other returns on investment that would be in appealing to a wider consumer audience. Um, these might be practices, sustainability practices. These might be maybe less traditional areas of research, maybe more on the 
um, side of things that will benefit consumers more directly or that they would feel that the benefits for their return as well as that to farmers. So I'd like to hear what, what some of you could offer for that. Great, thanks. We can just pass the mic over to Emmy. Oh, she has a mic. And if my Emmy Simmons, um, CSIS, non-resident senior fellow, I guess that's what you call. And my question follows exactly on Margaret's. Um, I found myself wishing, Sunny, that you had three hands. Because you said, here's the consumers and here's the farmers. Well, that's not the only two hands playing in this game, right? We have a huge commercial sector. And indeed, America, I believe, is better known for the bad influence it has on global nutrition and global health than it is for the good impacts that we are having. Because businesses, fast foods, have become kind of the face of American contributions to global food. I think we need to have this conversation, and I think this is what you were aiming at, um, Margaret, is that we need to include that, that sector that connects the farms to the consumers, and that con connects, and to use your term, Bob, has, provides that feedback loop from consumers through the processors, through the retailers, through the, the post-farm gate managers back to the farmers. I don't think it was the U.S. land-grant university system that caused consumers in the United States to eat a lot of quinoa, right? But I think that American consumers are, in fact, signaling that they want a more diverse diet. They want commodities that have certain qualities food qualities, nutri nutritional qualities. So I think what we need, you need to get a third hand, okay? Sure. Far <laughs> farmers, consumers. Oh yeah, that one like this. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic, go for it. Because I really do believe that we are underestimating the importance of the business sector in both taking farmer innovation and adding value and taking consumer needs and determining the research agenda. Thank you, Emmy. Sunny as Ganesh. Um, so we'll start with Sue and we'll come all the way down the line. So and if you, for all of our speakers, respond to any or all, of course, very brief lightning round here, as well as any final comments, Sue. For Catherine, um, the only reason I only gave that one example was because I only had seven minutes. <laughs> but in our publication, we actually do offer at the end of each chapter several other recommendations, and I would love to work with you on these. I think we need to flesh them out a little more and see what we can get acceptance on. So that would be terrific. And uh, just regarding bringing other people in, Emmy and I have been involved in a number of efforts where we've really tried to bring others in. Um, when uh, Bob Thompson referred to the dark days back in 08 when the total appropriation went to like 240 million or something, now it's over a billion, and we formed the Coalition for Food and Agriculture Development. Emmy and I worked very closely with Peter McPherson and others on that. And we did bring together, we've been trying for many years to try to bring together what we call strange bedfellows and uh, people who didn't like each other very much, frankly, for some reasons. And we find that if you do that, 
I mean, in CFED, we brought together relief NGOs, the private sector, universities. We had a number of people that don't normally interact. That you need to stick to the main topic of one main high topic of development. And that is the, um, in that case, it was improving the overall appropriation. Uh, this was before the world, world food crisis, by the way, when things were really, really bad. Because if you go uh, down very low on the priorities, that's where people start arguing and you really have to present a united front. So sticking really at the top main three or four points is the advice that I would give on that one. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sue. Bob? The only thing I would add with respect to the uh, issue of uh, consumer benefits, uh, cost of food. Uh, the, that's what productivity growth is all about, is uh, reducing the cost of production and, the, and eventually the market price. Uh, and uh, so it's, it's allowed far, farmers to uh, uh, increase their incomes at the same time that consumers have benefited significantly. But uh, no country in the world uh, is close to spending less than 10% of, uh, of, uh, of purchasing power on their food supply. And uh, it's the productivity growth that's given us that. Now, some people say cost of food is too cheap. I would only say uh, that uh, uh, the, the poor or the lowest income members of any society are those that spend the largest fraction of their income on food. So nothing is, has a greater, uh, a greater positive impact on, on real income distribution uh, than lowering the cost of food uh, on, which, on which people spend most of their uh, income. agrees with what you say. It's just making that, making that point. So um, uh, I want to pick up on uh, the, the three questions that were asked. And, and uh, the first one, Emmy, from, you know, from your perspective and the involvement of the private sector uh, and the non-governmental sector as well. They're a very critically important part of this whole enterprise. And what's happened is uh, globally our food systems are much more of a demand-driven a system than a supply-driven system. For a very long time, it was supply-driven, and uh, now it's become very much of a demand-driven. So look at what's happening to the uh, organic community, right? I mean, year on year, every year, there's like uh, seven to eight percent growth in the organic uh, efforts. So it's demand-driven. Quinoa, et cetera, are all from a health perspective as well. So we incorporate that into how we set priorities. We do a lot of listening sessions constantly. In fact, over the last one month, we've held uh, listening section, sessions across America, getting people to provide input to us. And so we incorporate that into the priorities and things like that. So your point is very well taken. And in my so I will remember to think of, uh, of uh, the multi-armed uh, uh, Hindu gods as I talk about this. In regards, you know, we're tracking, so what we've uh, pushed very hard in the last few years uh, to the uh, recipients of our of funding from us is it's not enough to say you got 50 publications of paper in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences or, you know, 20 students or whatever. What's happening on the ground in regards to be, you know, jobs being created and really changing the, uh, the, the scourge of obesity and things like that? And we're tracking that. Uh, we're, we've done, you know, had third parties come in and do, so the Battelle folks came in and did a uh, look at the, our investments and what kind of impacts is it having. 
to almost 20% of the patents that the private sector gets is built on investments NIFA has made. It doesn't even take into account what ARS has done. 20, almost 20%, almost one out of five. So that's pretty significant that to think about. So we have lots and lots of examples I can go, because at any given time we provide funding to about, uh, uh, we have about 10,000 different projects that we're funding. And I'll give you three examples of that, right? I talked about George Dubkovsky and them's work, okay? Uh, just this morning, I got an alert, University of Washington, uh, conductive paper that's wrapped around pipes. I'm talking about water pipes, which are pretty leaky in America, as you know. We lose about 30% you know, of the fresh water because we got leaky pipes. It has the, it's conductive, that paper and it sends a signal to your smartphone or whatever saying that I got a leak in my whatever pipe in this system that I've got. And, and that's pretty cool work that nobody had thought of. Second example is, uh, I wanted you to get your head wrapped around this. On the 14th of November, 2016, an airplane flew out of Seattle-Tacoma Airport, Boeing 737 Alaska Airlines, on wood chips, okay? came to Washington, D.C., Reagan National Airport, and it was received by uh, Tom Vilsack and others. It had the Washington congressional delegation, et cetera, on it. It was flown on wood chips, if you can imagine that. It's pretty difficult to get your head wrapped around it because they can, with the funding that we provided, uh, 40, uh, yeah, $40 million leveraged $200 million worth of uh, investments by the private sector and non-governmental sector. And airplanes are now flying. In fact, several airlines just in the last week have been flying on uh, jet fuel produced from uh, uh, wood chips and other biological, uh, agricultural uh, commodities as well. A third example is integrated pest management. We all talk about it. Just one piece of work out of uh, uh, Arizona and California. In those two states, in the crops that they deal with, I'm not talking about commodity crops, I'm talking about the nutrient-dense de nutrient crops and things like that. Because of the incorporation of integrated pest management, a 78% reduction in the pesticide load in, that, in those environments where those things are being grown as well. So we are tracking a lot of these things and we use that in the, the information that we provide. And we use various types of media. We work with various other groups, including you know, SOAR and them as well, on disseminating this sort of uh, information and knowledge. But your point's very well taken. We got to be able to tell the story, that value proposition that we bring to the table. And that's the only way we're going to get the, the American taxpayer to be interested in investing the kind of resources that we need. I mean, we're really resource uh, limited. Our funding rate, by the way, we talk about funding and all that, AFRI, is only 13%. And if you're a plant person, it's only 7%. Seven out of 100 proposals get funded. And it's the worst we have. NSF has about uh, almost a 15% funding rate. NIH has almost now about a 17, 18% funding rate. Ours, 13%. It, it, uh, you know, a lot of people are getting demoralized and saying, well, I'm going to go to something else as well. So with your help, we hopefully we can get the kind of funding that we need as well. You know, the Vanity Fair article that um, Dan mentioned at the very beginning, on it's an article on USDA. You don't often see Vanity Fair writing about USDA. It's a fascinating article. But one of its points that it opens up with is that the agency's greatest problem is that even the people it helps 
most don't know what it does. And I just feel like everything that Sunny has been saying, and at least in my own homework, you know, my background is USAID, not USDA, and in preparing for this and some other things that I'm gonna do on the Farm Bill, I am fascinated by the breadth of things that USDA does that people do not know about it. Let's give a huge round of applause for our speakers. Thank you, Thank you very much.